Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. Middle schoolers, you are dismissed. They'll be up in the youth room. Parents, the rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. So if you'll turn in the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 3, we're going to begin reading at verse 1. We're actually going to cover all of chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 21. We finished chapter 2 last week. Now we're going to move into chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can study chapter 3 of this wonderful epistle with us. I think that last week, if you were with us in our study, that we finished one of the most wonderful chapters in all of the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul was explaining to us of our spiritual condition before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. That spiritual condition was we were dead. That is spiritually. Physically, we're very much alive, but we're following after the lusts of the world, as Paul would, would write. And we are ones that, uh, before we came to Christ, though, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And sin worked against us, but God, because of his great love and great and rich mercy towards us, that he has provided salvation. He has made us alive. He has raised us up in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Paul went on to write about these marvelous truths and blessings and privileged status that we have as we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are trophies of his grace because we are saved by grace. Paul explained to us that we as believers, that we are then his workmanship, that is his masterpiece, his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then we ended the chapter last week, Paul told us, that it is Christ who is our peace. He's, he's broken down that wall of separation. You Gentiles who were considered afar off are now brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ into the household of God. And you Jews who had the promises and the covenants, now you see the big picture. You understand what salvation is, and it's by faith. It's not by the law, because the law is only going to condemn you. So, We come together because there is one gospel and one access to God that is through Jesus Christ. And now we have this single entity, this single group that is called the church. And we are living stones being made up a holy habitation or temple to God, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So let's continue to look at this wonderful epistle, chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. We read in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And so, Father, we do come to you this morning, and we ask that you would help us to be settled in our seats, in our hearts. Lord, our ears open to you. We want to be free from distractions, so help us remember that we want to make sure that our cell phones are on silent or, or turned off. So distracted by all the beeps and everything else that can go on but lord we want to be 100 percent focused on your word and our ears open to you and how you want to touch our hearts and our lives this morning as we read these wonderful truths that are proclaimed to us through your word so lord have your way in this place teach us make our hearts that are uh, one soft before you and uh, teachable and lord desiring to hear your truths this morning and applying it in our lives And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So remember that Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest, waiting to go on trial before Caesar Nero. And as we begin chapter 3, it's interesting to me that Paul's mindset is this, that I am a prisoner, not of Rome, but for you Gentiles. And of course, most of the believers in Ephesus 
who he is writing to, they would be Gentile believers, non-Jews. But we know that Paul, as he is writing at this time in his life, that he had been about in prison a total of about five years at the time that he's writing this letter. As you look at the book of Acts, he would spend more time in prison after he was released in his first imprisonment in Rome at this time that he's writing the prison epistles. But he would be rearrested. He would be in a terrible dark dungeon when Nero would give the orders to have Paul be executed. But the truth of the gospel is what Paul would bring to the Gentiles. And that gospel would bring them to Christ, to be a part of this holy habitation that he had just gotten through writing about in chapter 2. And as Paul, he would minister the gospel of grace to the believers, to all who would hear it, it got him into a whole lot of trouble. Of course, Paul was one in his ministry that went through the, the perils of persecution and, and toils and, and weariness and, and being beaten by rods. He went through some very heavy things because he brought this message of the gospel to the people in the Roman Empire, to the Gentiles, and also to the Jews. And so Paul states that I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. The, the message that I have given to you, which is the inclusion of you Gentiles into the household of God. You're no longer afar off. You're no longer foreigners and strangers of God, but now you have relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And I am a prisoner of Jesus. It's gotten me in trouble, this gospel message that I brought to you, but it's all part of what God is doing in my life and allowing in my life. I am not a prisoner of Caesar Nero. I am not a prisoner of the government of Rome. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul would say something very similar when he was also writing the other prison epistle, the book of Philippians. And in that, he says, you guys don't need to worry about me, but my chains are for the furtherance of the gospel. And there are those of Caesar's household that greet you. They're, they're your brothers in the Lord. And apparently, those who were guarding Paul, chained to Paul, would come. And, and uh, those of Caesar's household, the, the Roman soldiers, were there in charge of Paul while he was under house arrest. Some of them got saved. And so Paul, he had quite a prison ministry, as we have discussed in our previous studies. He not only witnessed to those who were there chained to him and guarding him, but also he wrote these prison epistles that are a blessing to us today because they're inspired by God. We have the truth of God's word given to us. And also Paul had quite a ministry of prayer as he prayed for the saints consistently. So Paul did a lot of ministry in prison. He did not uh, use uh, an excuse to not minister when he was in prison, but he says it's for the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul had an eternal perspective. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I was told after my conversion, as you know, uh, we read about in Acts chapter 9, that when he was in Damascus, that the Lord came to him and said, Paul, you're going to be a vessel of mine that is going to suffer many things for my namesake. And it would be later on in this chapter that we're going to read that Paul's going to state that I ask you not to lose heart. You know, don't worry about me, uh, but my tribulations are for you, which is your glory. Don't feel sorry for me. God has brought me to this place for his purposes, for his benefits, and he understood that God could use him where he was at, even in prison, as he was used for the furtherance of the gospel. 
And I just want to encourage all of us that are here, because maybe the place where you're at, at work, you think that this is a prison. I, I feel, you know, like I'm chained to this job or to this desk or whatever feelings that you might have. But keep an eternal perspective that wherever God has you and planted you, that allow him to use you for the furtherance of the gospel, to pray for coworkers, to be able to be a light to them, to bring even the gospel to those who perhaps are going to come to you as they see the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. And that's what Paul did. He was one that in prison, he continued to minister and as God was using them in a powerful way. And God wants to use you as well. But Paul continues writing here, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, verse 2, of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, how it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So Paul was one that brought the message of God's grace, which was given to him to bring to the Gentiles and to all. Paul was saying, you know that my particular calling to you Gentiles is known. You have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. Now, you might be thinking, what does that word dispensation mean? It might be, if you have a different translation, it might read steward or in your margins. It might be translated stewardship. You see, Paul was a steward over the message of the grace of God. And now in verses 3 through 12 of the chapter, he will in detail um, give concerning the message and ministry that he brought to them, God's grace, the apostle being a steward of grace, now, most of us know what a steward was. A steward was one that was an administrator of a trust that had to be dispersed. But also, a steward was more widely known at this time in history as there are many slaves, many servants that were in the Roman Empire. And a steward was one that was uh, entrusted to him the resources of the master's household. And whenever the master needed something, the steward knew where it was, and he could bring it out for the use of the master. He, he was a big help to his master. So God has made Paul a servant of the Lord, and Paul oftentimes referred to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And Paul is steward over the mystery of the church. Paul not only won the Gentiles to Christ and planted churches throughout the Roman Empire, but he made sure that they clearly understood about the grace of God and their wonderful privileged status that believers have in Christ. That's what he's done in the first two chapters of this letter, hasn't he? He's already told us the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, what he has done for us, the marvelous privilege and status that we have as one body in Christ, the church. And so Paul says that he has made known to me, verse 3, notice, that the Lord has made known to me the mystery. In other words, Paul was making sure that they understood that I didn't make it up. It wasn't taught to me by or shown to me by man. It was the Lord that revealed these things to me is what he is writing to them. And he would write something very similar to the churches of Galatia, his first epistle, early epistle that we have recorded in the New Testament. 
when he said to them right off the bat that I marvel that you're turning away from the gospel that I brought to you to another which is not the gospel. And Paul would say that if anyone or even an angel from heaven brings any other gospel than what we have brought to you, let that angel be a curse. And then Paul goes on to explain in Galatians chapter 1 that this gospel that I brought to you was revealed to me by the Lord himself. It didn't come from me personally. It wasn't taught to me by man. So here he's reminding them that he was, uh, this gospel directly was revealed to him by the Lord. So Paul received the revelation of the mystery. He was commissioned and ordained to be a steward to share that gospel message with others. And as he is sharing that revelation, that mystery with others. Now, remember, when you read the word mystery in the scriptures, in the New Testament, it is not referring to something that is puzzling or secret or obscure, you know. But it, what it refers to is that there is a truth that is now being revealed by God. could not be revealed by God, man, but now it's being revealed by God. And now Paul writes that this mystery has been revealed to me by God, and I have shared it with others. I'm a steward of it. I've already written some on it, and he has. It has also been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his apostles and prophets. Now, you remember last week when he was talking about the church, a holy habitation, uh, us as living stones are being brought together, as Peter refers to in his epistle. But this, the temple of God, the church that he has been building, we know that the foundation, the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ, and the foundation built upon the apostles and the holy prophets is what he would say in chapter 2. So the apostles and their apostolic ministry, Peter and John writing epistles about this same time to the Christians, giving the gospel and, and writing to them about the privileged status that we have in the Lord and the prophets uh, that have been revealed to them, God's word. We know that uh, the other apostles, the prophets, did not make up the gospel message, but it came to them by revelation. Peter would write something similar, as you might recall, not long ago, as we were in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verses 20 and 21, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul now begins to talk specifically about the mystery that has been revealed, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So the mystery revealed is that you Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, that the Jews and the Gentiles would be joined together into one in Christ, no longer separated. All men have equal standing before God. All believers in Christ are partakers of everything that pertains to Christ. So through the gospel, you have the promise of salvation and the hope of the kingdom of God. That is, you have the hope of heaven. You are a partaker in the grace and the goodness of God. I am a minister of that gospel revealed to me, as he calls himself a minister there in verse 7. Now, Take note that in verse 7, that word minister, it literally means a servant or a server serving as one who is a waiter. 
It is all through the power of God working in Paul, who has received God's grace, and his power working through Paul to be a minister of grace. It's like a waiter that's feeding them the gospel. You see, we have opportunity to minister, to serve others, and as we're giving them the gospel, as we're giving them the truth of God's word, it's like feeding them. It's, it, you're like being a waiter, uh, a waitress that is feeding people the word of God. Moms, you get to do that with your children, and dads, you too. You get to do that with those perhaps that you get to share with at work or a small group or minister in some way to the children and children's ministry, that we get to feed people the word of God. You know, people oftentimes will ask me, what's the vision for Calvary Chapel Greeley? And it's always been very simple, that you guys are the best-fed, best-loved sheep in Greeley, that I'm feeding you the Word of God, and that's something that I take very seriously, that when we come into this place and I get behind this pulpit, that I get to feed you the Word of God. And as many of you are discovering, as you're growing in God's Word, for, for the first time, perhaps, I was talking to a couple just last week, and they said, we've been coming, we're going through the scriptures for the first time. We went to church all of our lives. We grew up in a religious system that we learned parts of the Bible, but it was more about religion. And, and as they were telling me, they said, it's been like we're being fed a meal here. We didn't realize how starved we were for the word of God. And we have the privilege to be waiters, waitresses, and feed people the word of God as we share with them the gospel and the truth of God's word. All these things that we've been learning about so far in the book of Ephesians. So Paul here talking about being a minister, a steward of the gospel of grace, and he continues in verse 8, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, so Paul marveled at the grace of God that had been given to him. He would marvel at the grace of God that had been extended to both Jew and Gentile, but now having this common salvation, I have been made a, a minister by his grace. I am a minister of his grace. And Paul did minister because he thought he was so intelligent. Paul was a scholar. He didn't minister because he thought he was so worthy of it or deserving of it, but he knew it was because of the grace of God. And it interests me that he writes here, I am the least of all the saints. Later on in his life, when he was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he would state that I'm the chiefest of sinners. Paul was one that never elevated himself. He knew that his salvation and his ministry was based upon God's grace, not on himself. When Warren Worsby was commenting on this passage, he said this, that understanding the deep truths of God's word does not mean a man has a big head, but it gives him a broken and contrite heart. And you see, that's what it should do with us as we understand and begin to learn the grace of God in our own lives. When the apostle says, I'm the least of all the saints, I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners. It wasn't that Paul was practicing sin. It wasn't that Paul had some deep, dark, secret sin that he was committing that nobody knew about. It was that he just marveled at God's grace that he had experienced. He knew how undeserving we are of that grace, the grace that would save him, the grace that would use him to minister the gospel. Uh, it greatly humbled him. Paul did not exalt himself, and he never boasted in himself. He never pursued fame or tried to make a name for himself. He said, I am the least of all the saints. 
when he was writing to the Corinthian church, a church that had accepted those who had come in that were boasting that they were the most eminent apostles and were super apostles and don't listen to Paul. You know, they were undermining Paul's ministry. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote a lot about his ministry, how he came to them. And he took nothing from them, and he came to them in godly integrity and preaching the gospel to them. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul just continued through his life to marvel that God would use somebody like him and forgive him, who at one time persecuted and killed Christians, who in his own flesh tried to be righteous. To Timothy, again in chapter 1 of Timothy's first epistle, he wrote, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. That means that he was a violent, arrogant man. But I have obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceedingly abundant, as he writes. So God's generous grace should humble us. All the things that, that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks in Ephesians, God's wonderful blessings, the spiritual blessings that are ours, that we are chosen, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we have an eternal inheritance, He has made us alive, we are trophies, you know, of grace, uh, He desires to work in us, to be His masterpiece, and we've come together in this thing called the church, how can we boast in ourselves? And the marvelous grace, a merited favor of God extended to us, and as we ponder it and these truths that we've been learning about, it should cause us to be at awe at God's goodness and to say, Lord, I'm thankful that you've allowed me to be a steward of the grace of God to others. You see, I never want to lose that perspective. And every time that I have the privilege and opportunity to get behind this pulpit, I want to come up here humbly. I see it as a privilege. I see it as a, a wonderful opportunity, not because of me, but because of God's grace to be able to minister the gospel and God's word to you. I don't deserve it. It's not because I'm so together. It's by God's grace. And I believe that God delights in using men and women and churches that are just marveling at God's grace and goodness and desiring to be stewards of the gospel to others, not desiring to take credit or elevate their names or be in the limelight or elevate the name of a church, but has marveled at his incredible grace in their lives and in the life of this church and simply wants to share it with others. The grace that, that God has for them, the one that says in their heart, that God be to glory, great things he has done. An amazing grace, how sweet the sound, to save the wretch like me. And thank you, Lord, and what a privilege that you desire to use me, not because of me, but in spite of me. And I get to preach as he writes here, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you realize that you and I as believers, that we are rich, we're richer than anybody else in the world? You might be thinking, what do you mean, Pastor? I don't have two dimes to rub together. We are eternally rich, rich in Christ, wealthy with the grace and goodness of God and the spiritual blessings that are ours. 
and the riches of Christ and the spiritual wealth that we have in Jesus can never fully, can we comprehend it all. But I realize how rich and how wealthy I am in Christ and it does something to me and it should to you as well. And what it does is I want to give the message to others and that message is Jesus. To talk about Jesus, to tell others of the riches in Christ, my message to others isn't just philosophical. It isn't just about religion or programs, but it's about the riches that are found in Christ, what he has done for us, what it means to have relationship with him. If we would continue to grow and know in all that Jesus has done for us and has for us, we would realize how wealthy we are. The riches in Christ and in to, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. As Paul discusses the purpose of the mystery, notice he writes, to make all see. Interesting. Not just hear about the mystery or just have knowledge about the mystery. What is the mystery again? Verse 6, that you guys, you Gentiles, are fellow heirs of the whole body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. I want all to see the fellowship of the mystery. In other words, what Paul is getting across to us is the grace of Christ, the riches of Christ, is not just a message that we give, but it's something that others can see in our lives and how we live our lives. So can I ask us all a question this morning? Do people not only hear about God's grace from you, but do they see God's grace being worked out in your life? In other words, do they see the reality of Jesus in your life? How rich you are in your life because you're a Christian. The peace that passes understanding, the joy unspeakable, the wisdom that you have, the strength that is in you, the steadfastness, the blessings that that you have in life because you are a Christian? Do people not only hear it from you, but do they see it worked out in your life? That truly you're rich in Christ because you belong to him and you're submitted to him. And then in verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, and in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So God's eternal purpose and plan, his wisdom in that plan, the plan and purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus as he went to Calvary's cross and he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. It has been made known by the church, that is, how God brought together into this new man, that is the church that Paul wrote about in the last chapter, this, this new holy temple, this ha holy habitation, how the church testifies of God's wonderful grace and plan of redemption, even to, as verse 10 he states, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the heavenly hosts, just marveling at God's provision and grace extended to you and to me. That God would love man so much that he would become a man through Jesus Christ. I imagine in Luke chapter 2, the heavenly hosts that were praising God as the shepherds were out there in the field, they must have just marveled as they looked down into the face of that baby 
Jesus, they're lying in that manger. They must have just marveled the incredible love, the incredible grace of God, that God would become a man and, and come to this world to save man. So the wisdom and the love of God is being revealed through the church, and now we have access to God because of Jesus. As Paul would write in verse 13 of chapter 2, remember that we who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We have relationship with our Father through Jesus. And then verse 13 of this chapter, he writes, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Hey, don't faint at my tribulations. It's for your gain. And so chapter 3 of, of Ephesians, we have seen the mystery revealed, then the purpose of the mystery and now we're going to see Paul's prayer as he expresses praise for the mystery, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is moved. So Paul just begins to break out in prayer and praise as he pondered and wrote about God's grace and God's purposes. It would cause him to, to I, I imagine, fall on his knees there as he's chained to a, a Roman guard and just great awe and appreciation at the goodness and grace of God. And I like what he says here in verse 15. He prays to the Father in whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We are a family. We are a family. And not only on earth as believers, but also, as Paul indicates, those who have gone on before us. We're a family called after his name. And I can't wait till we're all together. And someday we will be all together. And Paul in his prayer now in verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul's prayer is that you be strengthened in the inner man by his spirit. So in chapter 1, the, the first prayer of Paul in this epistle, we saw that Paul prayed a prayer of enlightenment. Remember that? That you may know that the hope of his calling, the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, the riches of his inheritance. Now Paul, in this second prayer, is praying for empowerment. And it does bring interest to me that the prison prayers of Paul also found not only in chapter 1 of this epistle, but in Philippians 1 and Colossians 1 and Ephesians 3 here, they have one thing in common. And that is they all deal with the inner spiritual condition, the inner man. Now certainly there's nothing wrong with praying for physical needs and material provisions, but Paul knew that the condition of the inner man was of primary importance. That the spiritual condition of the inner man be healthy, be empowered by God to continue in the things of God. And then secondly, Paul in his prayer, that God may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17. Now this is important. That word dwell in the Greek means to settle down and make himself at home. That Christ might really be at home, be comfortable, be at ease. Kind of like an easy chair. That Christ may just kick back in the easy chair of your heart and be comfortable and at home. Now in my home, there's a chair, an easy chair that I have, and it's my chair. And... Sometimes when the kids are sitting in it and I want to sit down, I'll boot them out of that chair because that's my chair. 
And maybe some of you have that, you know. That's my chair. That's my easy chair. I like to sit down and be comfortable. I don't always do that, but sometimes I do. And I think that all of us, we want to be comfortable in our homes, don't we? We want to have that place where we can relax and be at ease and be comfortable. Now, I think that all of us have experienced being somewhere where you did not feel comfortable, where you felt out of place. You wish you weren't there. Last week, as I took my youngest to the DMV to get his permit, you know, that's a place where you don't always feel comfortable, isn't it? Or maybe some other place that you might be, the doctor's office, the dentist's office, whatever it might be. You're not in harmony in what's going on. But there are other places where you just feel so comfortable at, so at ease, so relaxed. So it's important for us to understand that when Paul's pr prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts, be at home in your heart, literally is what he's praying. It means that your heart is so in tune with the Lord that when he dwells in your heart, there is nothing there that will cause him to be uneasy, uncomfortable, or to be grieved. So another question this morning for all of us. Is there anything on the walls of our heart that would cause the Lord to be embarrassed or uncomfortable or grieved as he dwells, as he makes himself at home in your heart. Ezekiel the prophet was taken by the Spirit to Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And there was a wall, and God said, dig through the wall, Ezekiel. And he dug through the wall, and he crawled in, and he looked, and there was all kinds of perversity, all kinds of pornography all over the wall. Ezekiel said, this is horrible, this is filthy, and God said, I've allowed you to go into the minds of the leaders of Judah. These are the things that are on their minds, that are thinking about, the things that are in their hearts. So when God dwells in our hearts, what does he see? What does he see? Oh, you can hide it from everybody else. You can hide it to the people that are closest to you, but you cannot hide it from God. The deepest resources of our hearts, he knows, because he dwells in our hearts. That Christ might dwell in your heart and to pray, Lord, I pray that if there's anything in my heart that is unlike you, that grieves you, that is dark, that is perverse, Lord, I want to repent from it, and I want you to dwell and be comfortable in my heart. It's a heart issue, folks. And if there's anything that is there, we need to confess it and repent of it and give it to the Lord. So God sees the hidden things of the heart. Why? Because he dwells there. Paul praying that you may be strengthened in the inner man. It's not your own strength, that Christ may dwell at home in your heart and verse 17 goes on to say that you may be rooted and grounded in love. That's the key. Oh, that you might experience more of the love of God and that it might really flow from our lives, rooted and grounded in love. The idea of being firm. The more that you know Christ, the more you'll be established in His love and may be able to comprehend as he continues in verse 18 with all of the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Interesting that Paul is praying that we would know something that passes knowledge. The word there to know in verse 19 means to know by experience. It's the Greek word gnosko, knowledge by experience. Paul praying that you would know the depth of God's love for you. The width of God's love. 
which is so enormous. It's infinite. It extends to all. The one who seems so unlovable, so sinful, God's love extends to them. He died for them. Forgiveness is possible for all. And not only the depth and the width, but the length of God's love as well. What length did God go to? Sending his son to the cross of Calvary. And Jesus dying in ways that you and I will never fully understand. That you may know what is the depth of his love. God becoming a man, leaving the throne of glory and coming and not only becoming a man, but a servant, a servant to all and obedient to death. That you may know the height of his love, the heights in which God intends to bring you, that he might seat you together with Christ in heavenly places, to make you a joint heir with Christ in his eternal kingdom, that you may really experience or know his love for you, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now, the scripture tells us that heaven and earth cannot contain God. And I believe what Paul is praying is that you and I, as believers, that we would be so full of his love and spirit that we would be totally yield and submitted to him. More and more, every day as we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that you're yielded to him and that you die to self. That you just die to self. You know what the problem with us Christians sometimes? A lot of the times? Is we're so full of ourselves. Rather than being full of Christ, having the fullness of Him. He's praying that we would just overflow with His blessings and love to others. We are to empty self is what we're to do and be full of Him, of His Spirit. It's not a popular message in the church today to die to self. It's not a prayer that many ask to be filled with the fullness of Christ. Lord, help me to empty self, and you fill me with your Holy Spirit. You fill me with you, Lord. And then Paul concludes this prayer very powerfully as he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I love this portion of the prayer. I had it underlined it in my Bible as he closes that for you and for me, that God is able to do more abundantly, exceedingly than we can ask or think. He's already done that, hasn't he? And saving us. And the spiritual blessings that we've been looking at in this epistle, but also, listen, in what he wants to do in your life now. I love the attitude of Jonathan in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Jonathan gets up, he takes his armor bearer, he sneaks over to check out the garrison of the Philistines. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And Jonathan defeated the Philistines. But I love that phrase, let's see what God might do. And Paul, closing out this prayer, says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I have learned in my life, and I'm still learning, and I know that many of you as well, to get up early, like Jonathan, and just to say, Lord, 
I wonder what you might want to do. How you might want to work in my life today in a powerful way, to take a venture of faith. I'd love to see what you're going to do today because nothing restrains you from working. And listen, that's what makes being a Christian exciting. It's, Lord, I know that you want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or think. And listen, it doesn't happen all at once. It's over time. And as you are just sensitive to the leading of the Lord, as he prompts you, as he works through you, as he's guiding you in all things, you're going to look back and you're going to say, wow, Lord, you have done exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or think. So I just want to say this, don't miss out. Don't miss out. And what God wants to do in your life and through you as you just say, Lord, I just want to see what you're going to do. I'd love to just see as you promise that you're going to do exceedingly abundantly, but be sensitive to his leading, walk in obedience, and know that the Lord is able and willing to do that work that he wants to do, an incredible work. God is so good. And the work that he's done in us and saving us and the work that he wants to do through you as he desires to use you as a steward, as a minister of the gospel of grace, being a light to others. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter that's so incredible, the truths that are here, your incredible word given to us, truth extended to us so we can know the gospel message, the gospel of grace and how you want to work in our lives. Oh, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for your promises given to us, the spiritual blessings that are ours. And, Lord, I also desire to just be a steward of the gospel of grace. So if there's anyone, if you're listening on live stream or you're here in the coffee shop or in the sanctuary, You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. The depth, the height, the width, the length of his love for you is infinite, unsearchable, unconditional, immeasurable. And he proved it by going to the cross for you. And your hope and your salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone who alone went to the cross and died for your sins. He cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price for sinful humanity. And then he rose from the grave, validating, proving who he is. That is the Son of God. And because he lives, you can live. And the gospel message is that our sin has separated us from God. All of us have sinned. And the wages of sin is death but the free gift of eternal life is by his grace through faith. As you come in faith and surrender your life to him, he is your only salvation. There's no other sacrifice for sin. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, period. The truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he proved it by rising from the grave and conquering sin and death. And he is your salvation. He loves you. And the invitation is given to come and surrender your life. Come in faith. That's what brings salvation, faith alone in Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you. And if you believe in your heart, 
the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Will you come to him today? Today is the day of salvation. If that means anything to anyone this morning. And you pray, Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ, that you died for me, I know, and you rose again and you're alive. And I now give my life to you, be my personal Lord and Savior. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life. And I thank you for loving me and saving me and forgiving me. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your spirit. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. 